Shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pulse of Israel here in our eternal and ancestral homeland, the land of Israel. And today, from the beautiful, eternal, and ancestral Judean hills, today I am joined with my favorite Knesset insider, Jeremy Sultan. I think Jeremy is number 10 right now on the old, new Bayit Yehudi list under the leadership of Ayala Chaked. And let's, uh, let's bring in Jeremy and hear the latest of the crazy politics. Shalom, shalom, Jeremy. Did I get that right? Crazy politics? Is it, is it like, seems crazier than normal. Am I, am I okay with that assessment? I don't think politics have ever been as crazy as they are now. Uh, but that's not just a, a trend here in Israel, that's a trend globally. But definitely we are dealing with that symptom here in Israel right now. Um, there is very little sanity that I can tell you that I see right now within the political spectrum. Wow. All right, there is so much to go into. Um, I actually want to start with the latest headline that has basically thrown the Israeli elections and electorate into a tizzy and rightfully so. And that's with the press release of the upcoming speech by current Prime Minister Yair Lapid that he's supposed to give, uh, this is probably gonna come out after the U, the United Nations uh, speech, but he's, he's giving at the United Nations um, uh, plenum, basically voicing support in one way, shape or form for pushing forward the two-state solution that has basically been dead for ages. Um, there's so many different things to unwrap here, but go with it. What, what are your, you're involved in the elections, you're seeing the implications on potential voters because of this press release. It hasn't even been announced, his, his, his speech hasn't nope. even been announced yet, and, and yet it's still making, making waves. What's going on? What, what's your analysis into this announcement? All right. Well, I guess I'll start with the political side of it. If you want, afterwards, we can get into the policy side. But on the political side, this is by far the most uh, disastrous decision that Yair Lapid has made during this campaign. If there is one thing that is going to lose him this election, it will most likely be this upcoming speech. And why? There are two aspects that he needs to deal with. One is the situation of what's going on within his own block, and the second is what's going on in terms of the pool of undecided voters, the very small amount of undecided voters, I should say, that are trying to decide what's going on and are sort of looking between the two blocks. Let's start with his own camp. All of the polls show right now that merits, labor, uh, as well as, you know, Hadash Tal, you know, the um, surviving aspects, if you will, of the joint list, are all hovering around the threshold. There are virtually no polls that have them outside of, you know, the four or five seats area, and there is no poll that has been conducted that they've not been within the margin of error of falling under that threshold. By Lapid announcing that he's supporting a two-state solution, he's in essence putting a lot of danger on that fact that labor and merits are going to fall under the threshold. Now, again, it's, it's possible that he's doing this to try to help Hadash and Tal a little bit in terms of their struggle to pass the threshold 
after the splitting off of Balad. But we're still in a situation here where it's very clear that if I am a, a typical left-wing voter looking between Lapid and his satellite parties, when he goes in and says that he's endorsing a two-state solution, something that, for instance, Benny Gantz was afraid to do when he was the leader of the center-left bloc, something that, you know, Bougie Herzog uh, played around with but tiptoed but didn't necessarily go out with such force doing so when he was the later was when he was the leader of the opposition we see Lapid really going far to the left in terms of the position he's putting in here on the campaign and a lot of people are thinking between labor and Lapid between merits and Lapid are telling themselves you know what Lapid is my guy it's very clear to me that he is truly a left-wing person here I feel confident voting for this party Enough people feel that way, and both merits and labor, or perhaps just one of them, will fall under the threshold. On the other hand, he's going ahead and putting a lot of pressure on Benny Gantz's party. It's very clear to everybody that at least up until this point, the majority of Lapid's campaign has been directed towards Gantz in trying to take voters away from that party. If we look based on the polls, the average that uh, Gantz is getting for his party is 12 seats. We, we unpack those 12 seats. You see that eight of them support a two-state solution, four of them do not. So you're looking at a situation of two-thirds and a third. Benny Gantz has not responded yet to this situation of the upcoming speech tonight by Lapid because he doesn't know what he's going to say. If he says that he supports the two-state solution, then he's going to go ahead and go against a third of his party. If he says that he goes ahead and supports, you know, uh, Gidon Saar and, uh, um, and Zev Elkin and the others within his party who are against it, he's going to then deal with the flack coming from the majority of his party who expect him to then go ahead and endorse um, Lapid's speech. This is what happens when you have a party such as Gantz's, which is collected based on personalities, but not based on ideological um, components or actual policy um, positions. Because of this, it puts a lot of uncomfortable feelings with what's going on with Gantz's party, and they really risk the situation of losing both voters that are on the left side and voters that are on the right side. Now, that's in terms of the, uh, like I said, people who right now have a party. I talked that the second aspect is about those who don't have a party. There are a lot of people who in the past, they voted for Bennett, they voted for, um, uh, for Guidon Saar, perhaps even Lieberman, and they're looking out at the political map and they're saying, I feel very uncomfortable. Smotrich has now gone into an even deeper marriage, an even deeper relationship with Itamar Benvir and his Otsma party, in which they get 50% of that list. Av, you know, um, Avi Maoz of the Noam party, is in a central place, of course, very realistic, and is saying already in interviews that he wants to be able to have as much power as Netanyahu in the next narrow right coalition. That is, to a lot of people who voted Bennett and Saar, a very dangerous thing. And of course, they look at the results of the Likud primary, which has taken the be beast uh, aspect of you know, those who idolize Netanyahu as a personality, as opposed to taking political uh, policy positions, and they're looking at what happened in that Likud primary, and it's just something that's very scary for them. A lot of these people are also not very comfortable with the idea 
of Netanyahu coming back to power or Netanyahu coming back to power within the framework of a coalition that only includes the Likud, the Haredi parties, and again, the Smotrich umbrella. So when you look at undecided voters who are not sure what to do here with what's going on on the right side of the political spectrum, they say, maybe I'll go ahead and vote for someone like Gantz and someone like Lapid. And then they see Benny Gantz failing to go ahead and going against what it is that they see that Lapid wants to see, say, sorry, in the UN speech. And then they understand that Gantz is fumbling on this and that it, really the Palestinian issue is being placed back on the table. And this whole idea that Gantz is trying to say that it is not relevant is no longer um, an option. And therefore they're afraid to vote for Gantz. And a lot of people who wanted to vote for Lapid because they say, you know, Lapid was a mensch. He acted really nicely towards Bennett. He lived up to the agreements. He made sure to keep, you know, the honor of Bennett um, in place throughout this time period. They're looking at that. They see this as an attempt of Lapid to throw Bennett under the bus. And they see that again, that after Bennett had taken the Palestinian issue off the table, that it's Lapid that's now putting it back on the table. So again, if I'm, a, if I'm one of those voters before, and I was saying if I was a voter that is between labor and Lapid, now if I'm a voter that is between right now voting for someone like Likud or Smotrich, or on the other end voting for Gantz and Lapid, who's saying, you know what, the Palestinian issue isn't really you know, a thing anymore. I can vote for Gantz or Lapid. What Lapid is now doing by placing this on the table is taking those undecided voters and telling them they no longer have an option over there. And that pushes them more in the direction of Ayala Chiquette and the Bayat party, which of course is, as we said, a disclosure that I represent, but it also pushes them in the other type of direction of perhaps staying at home not even voting, and all of these things, whether they vote for Ayala Chiked, whether they decide to stay at home, whether you know maybe there's even a, a small fraction that does go to Lieberman on this, the overall sum of the parts of this decision is that Lapid risks putting labor and merits, or perhaps just one of them, under the threshold. And by putting the Palestinian issue back on the table, he increases the chances that Netanyahu gets his magic 61 that he wants without Ayala Chiked, but maybe even having a situation where there's enough of a pull here to move Chiked over the threshold and into a place where she could play a deciding factor within the next coalition, which is something that neither Netanyahu nor Lapid wants. But Lapid is in essence doing so based on his political decision here. If you want, I can take this into the policy position or you can ask me uh, if you want to, you know, buckle down and uh, go into the weeds of any of the things that I mentioned on the political process. Yeah, well, actually, the direction I want to take with you right now is, um, I don't know whether you'd call it the policy, but you mentioned this yourself. Bennett and Lapid made this rotation government where each one would be prime minister for two years. Um, forget about the fact that the government fell. Lapid is now prime minister. Um basically according to the agreement. And one of the aspects that kept that government together was a key aspect of the government was they said, listen, let's work on what we agree upon for Israeli society, the economy mostly, domestic issues, and we're gonna put the foreign policy issues that we disagree upon aside, right? Because 
Bennett, for those who don't remember, he was the, the first politician to put sovereignty in Judea and Samaria on the table as an actual political uh, map for moving forward, dealing with Judea and Samaria. Um, and yet Lapid is a supporter of the two-state solution. They said, we're going to put that aside. We're just going to deal with domestics and economy. And under uh, Netany uh, excuse me, and under Bennett's rule when he was prime minister, they really did that. They put the politics aside of the differences and they dealt with, just with domestic. And here all of a sudden, Lapid replaces Bennett as prime minister and Lapid is basically stabbing Bennett in the back and going against uh, the gentleman, not just the gentleman's agreement, I'm sure it was a written agreement as well. Yes, it's signed sign agreements of coalition guidelines. So, so how how does Bennett feel right now? Because in a sense, people like myself, we we thought this was going to happen from the outset, and we thought it was it was very stupid and wrong of Bennett to even go into this type of relationship, trusting Lapid to become prime minister for two years, knowing he was going to do this again. Where I wasn't a prophet, but I I, I'm, I thought that because I understand the I think I understand the the depth the left does to just get into power and then they do what they want um so how does he feel right now or how do you think he feels i mean you're not in his head but you are close to him with this right now happening and he did put out a public statement so you can go into that as well yeah i mean uh i would say i i, I think it was also a very lengthy public statement i think since he left office this is probably the longest public statement that he's put out right you know, uh, he did have that one speech that he gave, but that was an actual, that was a speech. Since he's left office, this is the longest, um, this is the longest public statement that he's made. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think the reason that we're seeing this is because, again, this is something that goes against written agreements. I mean, I, I can tell you from the inside, the amount of times that Bennett held people back within his own party and within his own half of coalition, right to be able to make sure that his side lived up to the agreement was something that he was working on around the clock to the point where, again, people can argue that that is one of the reasons why uh, lawmakers from Yamina decided to go ahead and leave the party and then support Netanyahu because of how much it was that he tried to be able to maintain his written agreements. What we see here is that Lapid is not doing so. I can tell you from Ayelet Shaked's perspective, she called up uh, Lapid, she called up uh, the prime minister last night, and she said, I want you to know very clearly, if you go and you give this speech tomorrow, you are doing so on your own volition, you are not doing so in the name of the government. This was not a government decision. This was not even brought up for a cabinet vote. This was not brought up to the government. There was no even written accord that was sent and circulated between the ministers or within the security cabinet. This is a decision that has severe ramifications. Again, whether you wanna say just on the diplomatic, but I would argue also on the national security. And Shaked is saying to Lapid in this phone conversation that when he is doing so, he is no longer representing the government. She's going ahead and doing so because as you know, if you are a member of the government, you have shared responsibility for actions. But if you see a situation where um, you feel the prime minister is acting outside of those realms, and again, here, he's going outside of the written agreements, 
and he's not even following the protocol, even if this was something that was in the agreement. Let's say, for instance, that the idea of a two-state solution was within the agreement. The various processes that I just explained is what you have to go through in order to actually take an idea and turn it into an actual policy you know, piece that you can then go ahead and unveil in front of the globe as, of course, the platform of you know, the, the annual UN speeches uh, in September are. So when she's going ahead and doing this, she's doing it to say very clearly, what you're doing here is not okay. But I wanna bring two aspects to this that are important based on what you said in terms of the past agreements and what we thought would happen. You know, if Netanyahu did not go ahead and give Sheikli and Silman what seems to be very obvious now to be the uh, bribery deal of go against the government, go against the party that you were voted on, and I will give you a spot on the Likud list, then Bennett would still be prime minister now. And this idea of the Palestinian state, you know, being put on the table would not happen. Now, you can argue that if we're, you know, a year into the future, then Lapid would still do that then. I would argue that the longer Bennett was prime minister, he continued this narrative and he made it more difficult for someone like Lapid to come back in afterwards and then go ahead and cause trouble. On a policy perspective here, I'm saying, Netanyahu's decision to go ahead and work within the Amina party to try to break apart this coalition and end prematurely Bennett's tenure as prime minister has caused this very linkage to this very disastrous potential impact of Lapid carrying out this speech tonight. Had he not done that, again, Bennett would still be prime minister. And we don't even know if Abu Mazen is someone who's going to be alive in a year plus from now. And even, you know, what's going to happen in terms of, you know, post Abu Mazen, in terms of what's happening with the PA. So I think that's a very important aspect to bring up. And I think on the other side, Gidon Starr, you know, when we created this coalition, and if you want, we can go back to that, but, but just in brief, we created what we call the Pariteti based on the previous government, where there's a 50-50 split. And we knew within the 50 split of our side of the government, with Gidon Starr and his party being together with our party, that we had a controlling share of 50% of the vote. When Gidon Saar decided to go ahead and make that jump from our side of the party and, you know, our side of the government, sorry, and move over to the side of Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid, what he in essence did was he prevented the situation of us being able to have a full 50% force against the various aspects that were happening within the government. So again, I really do say that besides Lapid, who's actually doing this, and he has a lot of responsibility for that. On a policy perspective, Netanyahu's decision to go ahead and bring down the government prematurely has brought this about. And on the other side, Saar's decision to ruin that 50-50 split and move over to the Gantz-Lapid side of the government has also given Lapid that extra, you know, gushpanka, as we would say here, you know, in terms of being able to go ahead and move forward with that process, because he can now say that the bennett Shaked side of the coalition is very small. We lost Silman, we lost uh, Orbach, we lost Sheikli, and on the other side, we lost Gidon Saar, and we lost, 
you know, um, Benny Bacon, and we lost many people on the other side there as well. And it left us with a very, very small amount of both MKs and ministers that are within this small realm that is uh, the right side of this current coalition. So it's interesting because on an intellectual level, I hear your claim, your claim saying, all right, uh, uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu holds part of the blame for uh, for Lapid now being in this position and, and making this announcement and trying to take Israel down a very dangerous road for the Israeli people, this failed two-state solution. But my, my claim... I still hold my claim that that's ignoring the fact of the deadliness of the left, that no matter what we do as the right to establish facts on the ground, even with policy, the left's agenda is always destructive, that even if it's in a year from now or two years from now, the second Lapid gets into government, he will try to push forward the two-state solution. I mean, just like the left calls us right-wingers messianics because we believe in that the best thing for Israel and the Jewish people and the world is for Israel to hold on at least security wise for Judea and Samaria if not also Gaza I don't think that's messianic I think that's pragmatic and realistic but yet they call us messianic I actually believe and I know you do as well think the left is messianic in their two-state solution just sure. believing in a messianic, totally disconnected from reality way. So I guess that's where I, I disagree with you on still thinking that the, 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 the initial sin was, again, in my, I use the word naive, and I know we've had these talks before, a naivete thinking that, oh, they're going to respect their agreements and not push forward uh, the left, even no matter whatever, and the more time we have to be able to establish facts on the ground policy-wise, et cetera. So I guess that's my, my biggest- Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, just take, I'll just take one point on that. I won't completely expand, but just on one point, because I didn't mention it in my previous you know, remarks. Sure. We have that aspect, and you know, we've talked about this, of the mechanism that we put into, this, uh, into these coalition agreements that Bennett would remain the caretaker prime minister unless we were in a situation where at least two members that had endorsed this coalition from our side of the fence would then go ahead and support uh, the toppling of the government. Right. Now, I would understand everything you're saying up until the point where Netanyahu told both Silman and Orbach, who both had endorsed this coalition, that they should go ahead and support the toppling of the government in a way that would allow Lapid to become prime minister. Now, up until this point, I can understand you in a lot of what you're saying. When Netanyahu chooses to tell the Amina lawmakers that what they need to do is ensure that what happens is Lapid becomes the caretaker uh, prime minister during the election and that Bennett cannot continue to do so, so, so again, to me, you know, that again just just shows that Netanyahu was playing within this pool of uh, of you know this party and this government in a very dangerous way. Because I'll tell you again, right now, had they not decided to make that decision, then Bennett would still be prime minister now, and again, Lapid would not. We'd still be going to an election. Again, I, you know, I'll make that clear. We would still be going to an election because he was successful in his first task. And that task was toppling down the government. But Netanyahu's choice to go that extra step further, saying politically it's better for me 
for Lapid to be the caretaker prime minister and that Bennett not complete the term until the inauguration of the next government. That, in essence, again, may, may, for, from all perspectives, both you know policy and politically, puts Netanyahu um, in a very, again, I'm not giving him all of the blame here, but a lot of the blame. Look, you have to also blame, you know, Seelman for agreeing to this as well, right? But a lot of the blame goes in Netanyahu for being the architect and trying to put this play uh, to ensure that Lapid would be in the position to then go in September and give this speech, creating uh, in his eyes, you know, in Lapid's eyes, the pathway back towards a two-state solution and Palestinian state. So, so I just wanted to make that aspect clear because I didn't say it beforehand. But I know that you know we we have a disagreement on that on this issue. Right. No, I, intellectually, I hear you, yeah. and your point is sound. But I, I guess the yeah, the disagreement is about what 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 what's first or what's the what. what no, so so, what's, so again, I, I was just saying serious that, issue that or the, yeah the agreement that brought the left back didn't need to even happen. <laughs> That's right. what I'm no, saying on that. No, I, I, that that I agree. I guess it's about. Just the agreement to allow Lapid to come into power, thinking right, no, I understand. that allowing the, the loophole to even exist. I, right. I understand. Right. All right. So let's let's move on to uh, not, a totally respectable disagreement. Totally fine, and I know it's there. So let's move on. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the next point. Um, something that that I think uh, Bennett and Shakade, even though it probably was more Bennett than Shakade, but that you know better than me. Uh, really strategized with the before the establishment of this government that is now falling was positioning themselves as a middle player in terms of being able to establish a, a working coalition. For those who do not totally understand what I'm referring to, Israel is very polarized, right, left uh, in terms of parties, and they were parties on mostly parties on the left that didn't wouldn't sit with with Likud and made it impossible to make governments, even though. Likud, Netanyahu was always open to making governments with left, right, left, center parties. Um, and because of that stagnation, Bennett and, and Shaked basically said, our party, we just want there to be a government. So we're going to make a government with, which, with whichever side is able to make a government. And that's what they did. And until around two weeks ago, that was Shaked's strategy as well after Bennett left and going into this new election season. Um, but all of a sudden, I think it was just a few days ago or last week, or Shaked made a strategic decision to change. And now she's saying, no, 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 you're voting for me. I'm only going with the right wing, with Likud and Netanyahu. I'm not going to play this middle game anymore and potentially sit with the left wing parties in a left wing government. You're right there in the middle of this when these discussions are going on, the strategy arguments. I'm sure there was a breakup with some members that were part of the party, Hauser and Hendel, that were part of the continuing that strategy, or they were the no BB strategy. Can, what is going on? Can, can you give us a little bit more into why Shaked made this strategic decision and how you and others who very much supported the straddling line are adjusting to this new strategic decision going into the elections. So if we go back just briefly to the formation of this government, we said, and definitely I can tell you that Ayelet Shaked uh, did in action, try to create a right-wing government. When that government did not uh, materialize for various reasons, and we talked about them before, there's no reason to go back there. 
uh, we were faced in a situation where we could either take the deal that was on the table from Lapid, or we could go to another election. In that situation, you know, we were uh, together in the room. We made a decision that we were going to take the deal on the table. Um, because again, based on the situation that we were at the time, for those that, that, that forget, we were after four elections in two years, we we're after three national shutdowns, where you couldn't even leave, you know, 500 meters away from your house. We we're in a situation where the economy was really in dire straits, the national debt, the deficit were in terrible numbers, the unemployment was off the hooks. And we had this thing called the halat of uh, vacation without pay, just to try to keep the unemployment levels, you know, just in manageable rates of, you know, like 20 or 25% and not get to like 50% like it is in Gaza or Lebanon. Um, we, and again, just for everyone, where, just to remind everyone, this is yeah. because of all the Corona shutdowns. And no, no, the, I, I said, you know, I said it was because yeah. of the, the three the national shutdowns, right. which, uh, which I know that you did not support, as you know, I did not support that, you know, either. I didn't think that that made sense. It really caused a lot of economic, you know, right. impact. But also on national security level, we had just had a a operation in Gaza. We had rockets being fired at Tel Aviv, at Jerusalem, everywhere else. We had the cancellation of the the flag march. We had a situation where there were balloons being launched daily. The farmers in the Gaza periphery were not able to, you know, have anything in terms of their produce actually get out. Yeah. But uh, we were in a situation where inside the mixed cities in Israel of Lod, of Ramla, of Akko, we had um, insurrections, we had fighting going on in the streets between the two populations. We had roads down south where the Israeli police closed it off for Jewish traffic. Jewish cars could not go through. We had the same thing happening in the north, in the Galil. Wait, wait you, you said the Israeli police shut it off, closed yes. the road. The Israeli police shut off roads during this time period out of the, the you know, fear and safety of Jewish drivers. They did not allow them to go in certain roads. Oh, but that, was, but that was after the, the Arabs were, sh- were, I, were... I am explaining, right, I'm oh, okay. explaining the context okay. of, no, I'm explaining the context of the decision-making that we made at the time where it was either go to another election when this was what was happening in the streets Literally, when we were making these decisions, there were crazy things going on in this country within the streets, and we had the option of either taking this government, which, like I said, did have a 50-50 split between us and Saar and the Lapid camp, with, of course, Lieberman being in the Lapid camp, meaning there would be a right-wing majority within the government, within the executive branch, not within the legislative branch, which, of course, would be our downfall later on, but in the executive branch, we knew that there would be a majority for the right or go to an election when this is the situation, when uh, Biden is enacting a settlement freeze within Judea and Samaria, when there's pressure for a you know consulate to return to a Palestinian consulate to return to Jerusalem. Again, when we're dealing with the economic, national security and diplomatic situations that we had, knowing that we failed to produce a right wing government based on the numbers of the election and the cross tabs of the various vetoes from the different sides. We're in a situation where we either took this or we went into another election. We chose to go into this uh, government. And again, the great majority of the party at the time agreed with it. As time went on, less and less people agreed with it. If we look at the situation today, out of the top 20 
uh, that were within the room in terms of the candidates and the MKs. Um, eight of them have, uh, you know, that's that's almost half, right? Eight of them ha have made the decision to, you know, join the only BB camp and to be in a situation where they, at all various aspects, I'm talking about until the last month or so, uh, you know, be completely against this government and try to knock it down. There were seven, you know, of us who uh, joined or, you know, together, I guess I would say, even with Bennett, eight of us, you know, to counter that, that remained within the, um, within the uh, party of Yamina trying to influence from within. You had two who decided very early on within this election process to drop out and join the anti-BB camp, those being, of course, Matan Kahana and uh, Shirley Pinto. And then you had um, two, two who decided to um, become an access party where they're saying, we'll go with whoever it is. We don't care what the outcome of the election is. We care about our specific issues as issues. And that's, of course, Abir Kara's economic party and Silla Weinstein's um, 3040 you know, family right uh, party. So if you're looking at, again, the breakdown, that's pretty much the breakdown that happened within the eight of us who, who stuck around. So, you know, again, there are complications. I'm not gonna go into each and every person, but I think what's important to look at is specifically the six of us who maintained our position within the Amina Slate and joined the BITUD, um, you know, list and uh, are running under that banner in this election is that if we're looking at the current situation where we see there's a chance of Lapid having some sort of government with cooperation from the components of the joint list, which is something that is very, very scary. It is very scary. Let's remember whether Again, you Again, just to remind people, not, the joint list is the joint Arab list, which includes very anti-Israel representatives. Right. I just want to say in two sentences, whether you agree with him or not, Mansour Abbas has said vocally, publicly, that he supports Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. He went to the burnt synagogue in Lod to show his condemnation and criticism and show his support for Jewish neighbors. Again, you can say it's lip service, you can say you don't believe him, but in practice and in policy, there is a very big difference between what Mansour Abbas and his Ram party stands for and Hadash and Tal, the two parties that are left of the joint Arab list that do not accept Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, and they're looking to end the Jewish aspect of our state. So again, when you're looking at that type of a situation, to me at least, it is very clear that there is a lot of danger having a situation where you have a government with Lapid and the joint list. This is something that, of course, Ayala Chiquette feels is a very dangerous scenario. And my other friends that stuck around within the party, including MKs such as Kalfon and Starkman, they understand these type of dangers. And the other side of it, they understand that a coalition that has Bibi with the Haredi parties and Ben Gvir, along with Smorich and Avi Maoz, without the additional component of a party like us being able to serve as a check and balance, is also a very, very dangerous situation of the ramifications of what can happen there. So you have a lot of us that feel that there is a necessity for this new national camp to be able to have a voice in whatever type of government happens. Look, we, we, we started the program today talking about 
what happens when Lapid tries to free himself from, if you will, the shackles of the checks and balances of Bennett and Shaked within this government? What happens in the next government without Bennett and Shaked in that type of a government? And on the other side of things, right. if we're looking at what's happening with Netanyahu and the direction that he's trying to take this country, as someone who, again, he is a populist. He's not a conservative. He's not a nationalist. You know my position on this. I do not view him as a right-wing guy. Definitely by policy, he's not led everything by you know what's going on with the right wing. What's to stop him from making a deal with the prosecution that they drop the charges against him to then take us towards a Palestinian state? You know what's to stop him from doing what he's done in every previous election and try to go ahead and bring Benny Gantz, who's gonna you know in my opinion uh, lose a lot of seats. Uh, between now and election day and try to save him politically and try to go ahead and have all of these things. I think, again, there's a big necessity in having specifically our voice of Ayala Shaked, Yom Tov Kalfon, and others within that coalition to be able to go ahead and provide a check and balance from that type of situation. And yeah, if we are in another position where there is no ability based on the numbers for a right-wing government to be formed, to figure out what we can do to improve on the situation from going into an, another election where Lapid would be the caretaker, you know, govern, you know, prime minister without Bennett as the alternate prime minister, because once the inauguration of the next Knesset comes into effect, because Bennett will no longer be an MK, he can continue as settlements minister, but he cannot continue on as alternate prime minister. The understanding that there might be a necessity to make a deal there on the other side in order to make things better. You know, it's it's something that might sound as as uh, as uh, a slogan or shallow, but really it is very deep, and it's a motto that has a lot of value-based and policy-based aspects to it. When Bennett said during the coalition formation process of last year, "We will do what's best for Israel," Ayelet is repeating that same line. And yes, that means in a lot of different you know, scenarios, we will go ahead and see uh, Netanyahu as a prime minister in that type of a government. But that's something that we also said as a possibility in the last election, that that was something that was obviously going to be there, despite the fact that we were attacking uh, Netanyahu based on a lot of his positions, whether it was uh, to deal with corona or to deal with a lot of the other disastrous stuff that he did in terms of uh, the economy, but also on the diplomatic and national security front vis-a-vis -vis Gaza and vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli-Arab situation within this, um, within the previous national unity government that he formed with Gantz. So again, you know, taking you again into those rooms, those are the type of arguments that we were talking about. And then you have to make decisions. Look, it's very easy to go ahead and stay outside or to just say, you know, is uh, Abir Kara is, we'll just go with the winner. You know, whoever has the most, we'll just go with them. Whoever listens to our demands, we'll go with them. And, you know, that'll be what it is. In the end, we see that there is room for concern of the joint list. There is room of concern of the Palestinian state being put back on the table. On the other hand, there is room for concern that Bibi is just going to do what Bibi needs to do for himself and not put the country first. And we need to understand that there needs to be responsible adults in the room 
in whatever coalition is formed. And we're always going to prefer a right-wing coalition over a center-left coalition. And that's what we did last time. And that's what we're going to do this time as well. So you bring up a number of points that, uh, that I want to go into. Um, specifically, uh, you brought up Ram and also you brought up Netanyahu. But before I touch upon both, the follow up both of those, I, I just want to go back in terms of, in terms of Shaq, uh, Ayala Shaked, again, today's leader of the old new Bait UD party and Bennett, they were partners up until now. Bennett, which I believe made a very smart political move, decided to take a step back out of politics. I'm sure you know more than me, but I'm sure he's going to make a comeback one day and it will. it's going to be easier for him to make that comeback for people to be clamoring for him, oh, please come back because he's taking a step out. But even since he's taken a step out, it does not seem that he's supporting Shaked and the Bayit Yudi party. He hasn't come out publicly at all. Uh, some people are looking into him being quiet about it or whatever things are saying. He's actually stabbing her in the back by not publicly stumping for uh, politically for her and, and the party. And another sign, it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but a sign is the other closest politician to Bennett in the government was Matan Kahana, and he jumped to join Gantz. So are you able to shed some light on this uh, feeling in some of the public that Bennett is not going to be supporting Ayala Chaked and the Bayit UD party, or is he just being quiet, or are we just, elections season really hasn't begun yet, and we have to wait and see what, uh, when he's going to come out and actually come out. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you, you said correctly, Bennett's not said who it is that he's supporting this um, in this election. If he does make a decision, if I was advising him, I would tell him to wait till the last week of the election. <laughs> There's no reason uh, to make a decision now. Well, well, but, that's, end, but, but wait a second, but Jeremy, that is yeah. increasingly surprising and, and sad to hear personally, because here he and Shaked have been together for over a decade. I remember when they started the Israel Shali non-governmental non organization to make influence from the outside. They've been together forever. And for you to say that Bennett is going to be waiting till the last week of the election, if potentially to come I out said, publicly? I said that's what I would advise him because but, as you pointed, okay. no, because as you pointed out, he's not sitting, he's not sitting in this uh, election process. He's taking a time out. I agree with you that I do think he's going to come back. He's going to come back stronger, and people are really going to beg him to come back, uh, considering that uh, the, the the outcome of this election, however it is, whatever government we're going to be looking at, it's going to be the less of you know evils. It's not going to be in a situation where people are going to be very happy with the composition of the government. Uh, I'm talking about the great majority of Israelis, whether it's from the right or the left. So, so again, you know, that's that's the position he's in right now. And again, in terms of supporting Ayelet, if he decides to do so, he can do so, you know, in the last week of the election also. He doesn't need to do so now, meaning because he's decided to take a step back and considering the fact you can only make an endorsement once, the best decision to make, and a majority of people have done so, whether you look at Olmert or Barack, who again, they haven't always endorsed the party that they came from. Most of the time they did, but they gave time for the election to develop. They did so for a number of political reasons, um, but also for other reasons. And if you will, I believe that at this point, especially since he hasn't made an endorsement, he's able to make public statements as the alternate prime minister 
in a way that has impact. The public statement he made right now against Lapid, it's a lot stronger because he's not looked upon right now as partisan. Had he gone ahead and endorsed Ayala Chiquette and then made this statement, they would say that he's aligned and colluded with Ayala and he's just trying to help her and the party that he affiliates himself with and came from and so on and so forth. But that would be logical because that was his party. So, so, so again, you know, I, I, I told you, you know, the party of, you know, Naftali Bennett was Yamina. Yamina right now is running with Baid UD. Baid UD was the previous party, of course, of Bennett. Bennett made the decision to leave the Baid UD. Ayelitz made the decision to return to the Baid UD. But if I'm looking at uh, the list of people that are not from, you know, Yamina, that are, you know, the full-fledged Baid UD, you know, members of that list, um, I, I would understand, you know, if I was Naftali Bennett not having complete, uh, what I would say, a complete comfort level with some of those type of people, and perhaps want to spend time uh, either meeting them in person, hearing how they campaign, making a decision. Because look, you mentioned before Hendel and Hauser. Hendel and Hauser were part of the Gidon Sar party. They, they left that party or they were thrown out of that party, whichever narrative you want to you know, listen and believe in, because Gidon Sar decided to go with Benny Gantz. Ayelet Shaked's decision to then go with the Baid UD, you know, with Yossi Brodny and Chagit Moshe and, and all of those people, and uh, people that have that school of thought, you know, to me, again, that means that that gives Bennett the time to sit back and reflect and see if that's something that he wants to be a part of or not be a part of. And I think that is a totally usual, normal human behavior, which also reflects what previous prime ministers, going back to Barack and Olmert, have done in the past. Uh, I can also look at, uh, you know, for instance, uh, you know, Yitzhak Shamir, who in the end, I remember in the 99 election, decided to leave Likud and support Benny Begin and uh, the National Union and even take the ceremonial 120th spot on the list um, and criticize Netanyahu, who Shamir had even, you know, supported Netanyahu as his um, successor, but then literally joined the list and campaigned against him. So, so I agree with you as someone who is perhaps one of the only if not the only person who's left from that time period from 10 years ago, that as far as I'm concerned, right, you know, uh, being asked to choose between uh, Naftali Bennett is, uh, uh, it, it, you know, and Ayel Shaked, if you will, is uh, they say in Hebrew, you know, uh, to choose between a mother and a father is not something that you ask the child to do. So I'm saying that uh, I'm not going to get into any decision making, you know, processes that either of them need to make. But I'm saying I, I totally understand from the Bennett position, this isn't the Yamina that he created. This is a completely different Yamina. Um, this is the Yamina that's running with BITUD, which is something that I can say very certainly that if Bennett was still at the head of the party, he would not make this uh, decision. And he needs time to make a decision if that's something he's comfortable with or not. And I would say beyond that, I think if you know, you're looking at the members of Yamina that were left, if uh, Bennett was, was choosing and circulating uh, the names and trying to, if you will, on the blackboard, figure out within Yamina who it is that uh, he's putting there and who he's not, um, if Bennett was still around, I think Matan Kahana would still be in the party. And he would probably, you know, again, be in a very central 
uh, place there within the list. And I think that again, within the ordering of the Amina members, again, I'm excluding the eight members that joined the only BB block. I'm saying at that time period when Naftali gave the hands of the party from uh, himself to Ayelet, if I'm looking at the other 12 names that are left on the blackboard, if you will, that I think he would have, um, uh, if you will, changed the deck, shuffled the deck in a different position based on the names that Ayelet decided to go with. And of course, uh, the order that she went with as well. So I'm saying, if you're looking at all of these things, and not looking at it on the simplistic way that uh, I understand is the knee-jerk reaction for most people to look at it. But I'm saying if you're trying to look at this as an in-depth you know, type of situation within the ramifications of, as you said, Bennett is someone who very likely uh, you know, is someone who's going to come back, he needs to make for himself his own political decisions. What makes sense for him? Just as Ayala Chiquette is making the political decisions for herself, what makes sense for her? You know, the decisions that she made to part ways with certain people, the decisions that she made to shuffle the deck in the direction that she wanted to do, the decision that she made to go ahead and join the Bayat UD. These are all things that are good for Ayala Chiquette. And as someone who, again, you know, I love my mother and my father both very much, that um, you're in a situation where it makes sense for Ayala to do the decisions that she's making for herself. And it makes sense for Naftali to make the decisions that he's making for himself. And for the last 10 years, those have been decisions that were made together. For the first time in 10 years, they're in a situation where they're not in the same list running for Knesset. I can tell you, I, I shared the um, interesting historical tidbit that I was the only candidate to sign candidacy papers during the six elections of 2013, 2015, and then, you know, the last uh, four that we had in those previous two years um, that Ayala and Naftali were on. I'm the only person that joined them on that level of being an official candidate of signing those papers on those elections. And Naftali made a decision that he wasn't going to sign those candidacy papers uh, for this election. And considering that he made that decision, he's doing what's right for himself. She's doing what's right for herself. And uh, I think it makes sense for both of them. We'll get to, like I said, what I believe makes sense in the last week of the election. And uh, he'll either make a decision or maybe he won't make a decision. And that could also make sense to not make a decision based on what the situation is. We also don't know what's going to happen. You know, if you told me a week ago that Lapid would go to the UN and give this speech, I would say, no, there's no way that he's going to go ahead and do that. So I think that, again, you have to understand it makes a lot of sense, in my opinion, again, you know, I'm not speaking on his behalf, but to wait and see how this campaign uh, runs, how things work out, what are the issues that are going to come out onto the forefront, because it seems very clearly that the direction that we've seen over the last, uh, what, what's it been now, um, five or six weeks since we've announced this election, has been that we've not been able to predict the trajectory in terms of the subjects and the topic matters that we've been uh, seeing on the front pages. And it's very possible this is going to continue. Well, 
All right, well, let's let's finish up with this final issue because it's really important. We'll, we're talking about the Ram, the Muslim Brotherhood Party, and we'll leave Netanyahu to another time. Always can talk about Netanyahu. Um, uh, but you, you mentioned a, a very important point, basically that the actions of this Muslim Brotherhood Ram Party in terms of in word voicing for the first time ever really support for the Jewish state of Israel, and they take taking certain actions visiting a synagogue that was basically, I call the pogroms of the May 2021, when Arab Israelis basically killed some Jews, uh, went, went crazy with violence, uh, closing of ro roads, destroying synagogues, and the leader of that Muslim Brotherhood Ram Party actually visited one of those synagogues that was burnt down by the, the local Israeli Arabs. Um, now, I'm going to take a step back from this and tell you that my issue with Ram has nothing to do with this government. I was vocal about the danger of Ram when it was being talked about of Netanyahu having the Ram party join a right-wing government. And my real um, Urim Vitumim on this, my, the real expert that I, that, that I was listening to and talking to about this was uh, Middle East and Islam expert, Dr. Moti Kedar. And at the time when Likud was talking about Netanyahu wanted Ram and his party, Kedar was saying, no way. You can never, you, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, its whole modus operandi is to lie in order to achieve its aims. So you, and, and, and their charter, even their charter talks about how, yes, we're going to take advantage of getting involved in government and then be able to change Israel from the inside, but fake it like we're like we want to be part of a part of the Israeli government. Hence, in some ways, I believe again based on my knowledge and learning, and I know you know this stuff as well um, uh, from Dr. Kedar that Ram is more dangerous than the Joint Arab List because Ram is are, are trying to fool the Israeli public like. Oh, no, 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 no. They've given up their, their ideological and religious desire to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. And now they've come to accept it. And now they just want to work with us. Hence, I'm against, I'm, I'm against them being, being electable to the government based on them being part of the Muslim Brotherhood. There are Middle Eastern Arab Muslim countries that have the Muslim Brotherhood um, uh, uh, forbidden from running for any political positions in their governments. And yet the Jewish state of Israel allows it. So they shouldn't even be running based on their ideology. And yet, I think, again, we have a certain naivete within our public, within the, within the Jewish public at large, and even within politicians and the political movement, who goes, oh, they're voicing support for Israel. They're taking these steps. The, the, finally, it's behind them. They're, they don't want to destroy Israel anymore, and we can have them part of the government. I'm, I'm scared to hear this language being used because of the because of the potential danger of allowing them to be more and more part of the government and hence my disagreement both in a lot not just a lot uh, bennett having and lapid having them in their government but even likud in the right having them in their government so how how would you respond to that Can really um so i have two points one is the point that all politicians or maybe not all politicians or to various levels um, don't necessarily share their true private, you know, uh, convictions and plans. Uh, and what they say publicly is many times very different from that. 
And I would say that many politicians are liars. So to say that Mansour Abbas is different, for instance, than any other politician that's in the coalition or opposition, um, that in itself, again, I, I just don't feel- No, that sense. I accept 100%, see, but to, here to we're talking about a lie about supporting the ultimate okay, destruction so, of the so, state of Israel. But I'm saying that based on that, in the end, you, you have to look at what it is that you actually give them. And that brings, that brings us to the second point. One of the things that was very important for Lapid in this government was he wanted, you know, Abbas to be a minister or at least a deputy minister. And he even, you know, asked and, and you know, legislation was passed to create a situation of allowing two ministers within a ministry. But this is something that Bennett didn't agree to. He said, I'm okay with Ram being a part of the coalition and being a part of the majority on the executive branch, but I refuse to allow Ram to be part of the executive branch. And because of that, Abbas and Ram never got a chance to be a member of the, um, uh, the cabinet, the government. Um, they, they just had no access. and They were just not part of the executive branch of the government. Um, th this was a very, very important point for us. And this goes back to a lot of the decisions and, uh, if you will, the ultimatums that, that we came back to with Lapid in terms of being able to move forward with this coalition. Look, um, uh, originally Al-Kharoumi, but then afterwards Walita ended up taking upon the interior uh, committee chairmanship, right? Why is it that the number one of the party, Mansour Abbas, didn't get the chairmanship? That's because he was slated to get something within the government. We said no, they tried at various times to go back to that. And, and we just said no, because we didn't agree to that. And one of the ramifications and understandings of this current coalition is even on the legislative branch, that when we needed to rely on them to be able to pass the Judea and Samaria regulations, we couldn't count on them for that. And because of that, the government fell. And because of that, you know, that's one of the components of why it is that, that uh, you know, Bennett isn't prime minister. Of course, our expectation was that Netanyahu and Smotrich would vote the right, you know, the, the, the rights and the interests of their own constituency in Judea and Samaria. They decided not to do it. In the end, we don't have a coalition agreement with the opposition. We had one with Ram, and they weren't able to live up to their signed agreements with us. But let's look at what Ram was able to get out of this government, right? Because in the end, if you look at the legislation and stuff that they were able to get, we're talking about things that did have to deal with civil issues. They were not able to impact anything in terms of the government direction on national security level, on a diplomatic level. They just did not play a part. They did give us legitimacy to be able to go into the Arab villages and to take illegal guns and to do a lot of operations and to fight against the situation of nationalistic um, arson and also the situation of um, what we call a pshia chaklait, uh, criminal activity against agriculture and farmers. And we were able to use the fact that they were in the coalition to be able to do things that worked for our policy objectives. Now, again, there were a lot of stuff that worked for them in their policy objectives as well, but they were not things that ended up compromising the Israeli interests. You know, a lot of times I would see numbers being thrown around in terms of the amount of money that Mansour Abbas got, that Ram got, that the Israeli Arab community got. Well, one thing that they're forgetting about is that every year 
in the budget, in state budgets also under Netanyahu. These are the great majority of these things are things that existed. What we did is we went ahead and we increased the funding in certain areas. But if you're looking at the Delta, it's not as big as you might think that it is. Also, when you look at all of these things that were talked about in the um, big plan, in the Tochnit Mitar, we're talking about a five-year plan. That isn't everything that went into the first year. And again, in a lot of these uh, stages, you look at it from annual year to annual year. You do the work within the committees in terms of the job of the legislators to be able to have supervision. Unfortunately, the opposition decided not to join the committees. So it was only the coalition that was doing the supervision as opposed to the opposition doing the work that they were you know, elected to do. But when we needed to, and I'll tell you someone, and we've talked about this in the past, I spent many hours within the Internal Homeland Security um, Committee, which is a new committee that we created. And we did so as a ramification, as a consequence of the various pogroms and situation that you mentioned and that I mentioned early on, which brought us into this government. And look, when I'm looking at things strictly from a policy perspective, I look at what they got versus what we got. I can tell you, really, with full confidence, we got a lot more out of this deal than they did. And it's possible that because of this, Ram will not even pass the threshold. <laughs> That's something that is that is very possible. When you look at this stuff, the safeguards, everything, for instance, that Shaked put into the electricity law, which uh, if you're Ram, that's the flagship thing that you're putting up there, where you know they were trying to get hooked up to the electricity grid without going through the process of licensing and going through the process of getting the permits, uh, using her position as the interior minister and the head of being uh, the head of the um, planning and building committee being under the interior ministry making sure that licensing and permits need to be given before you can get the electricity, you know, by going ahead and doing those things that, that uh, went ahead and took out a lot of things that they were hoping to be able to accomplish. So look, if they were part of the executive branch of the government, I would understand what you're saying, but they weren't. If we're in a situation where they're able to get signature pieces of legislation passed, or various policies outside of legislation that put Israel in danger based on what it was that they did, I would also understand, but they didn't. And then we dealt with civil issues. We didn't deal with nationalistic issues. And it's very clear, at least based for me, that we had the uh, majority of wins there compared to the fact that they did. And if I'm taking them at their word, supporting Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, Again, even if, like we, we said in the beginning, that it is lip service or whatever it is, it doesn't matter because that is the message that is heard. That is the message that is heard by their community. That is the message that is heard by the international community. And I can tell you many times, the fact that they were a part of this government was able to be very helpful in terms of reducing international pressure uh, against this government. So, so you know, as much as you might think that they used us, I feel more confident that we used them a whole lot more than they used us. But again, that, that's a thing of, of, of politics. Sometimes you have to take chances. In this case, we took a chance and for us, it was a win. It's possible that we would not have won. Again, you look at the situation of what Lapid is doing right now uh, in the UN is something that's obviously not a win. For us, that's a loss. But I think at least until now, 
Iran in terms of our relationship with them. It's been a win other than, of course, them toppling the government, which was not a good thing in terms of the regulations of Judea and Samaria. But overall, I think that uh, on the policy level, we can look at this as a situation where this was a relationship that made sense. And that's why also, you know, um, I'll go even further. If we're in a situation unlike this coalition, where we need to rely on them for 61, if we're in a situation where we already have 61, or we have 65, and we're not relying on their votes, I would again explore based on, you know, depending on the agreements, but I would explore the possibility of repeating this relationship when we're not reliant on them for a majority within parliament, we're again, strictly, they're only part of the legislative branch and not part of the executive. Listen, I, I very much appreciate your answer and I'm, and I'm thankful for your explanation uh, in order to, under, again, understand the rationale behind it. I still think that us Western-minded, rational thinking people discount the the, the, the the irrational aspects of these decisions and and and, and policies again I, while I know on the international level it looks good to Israel oh Israel has a government with the uh, with the religious Muslim Brotherhood party like obviously we're not an apartheid state like duh but the Israeli Arab public they're smarter than that they know that Ram is just playing lip service. The Arab Muslim world knows they're just playing lip service. And the long-term damage because of a deepening of understanding within the Arab Muslim public, like, hey, we're succeeding in taking them over from the inside, which to them is a thousand-year plan, not something that can be looked at within any one or two-year period. It's extremely, it's extremely dangerous, which goes into the deeper issue that we're not going to deal with here, and this is an Israel issue that has nothing to do with you right. or Bennett or, or our politicians. This is more on the legal side um, where my biggest gripe for, for Israeli Arabs are there are Israeli Arab, even Israeli Arab Muslims who do know how blessed and lucky they are to live as Israeli citizens in the Jewish state of Israel. And yet they have no representatives in the Knesset in Israel's parliament, because mostly all of the representatives for the Arab sector are individuals and parties that publicly so either support terrorism, support the ultimate destruction of Israel, support the establishment of, of, of a Palestinian state which endangers Israel, support from the river to the sea. All of their public, most of their public statements, whether publicly or privately to their own constituents, is against Israel and against the entrance interests of the Arab Israeli public. And we need to get to a time where there truly will be uh, an, a party of Israeli Arabs. Arabs have always been part of some of the Israeli Jewish parties that has existed, mm -hmm. but all of the Arab only parties have always been these anti-Israel parties. Um, and it's because, well, since, the, because of the justice 77. system. Okay, and it's basically because of the justice system, because even, because they, Whenever, according to the Israelis, Israel's basic law, uh, these Arab parties or, or politicians are supposed to be um, are supposed to not be allowed to run, the the Supreme Court allows them to run, and the biggest losers out of all who lose the most are those Israeli Arabs and Israeli Arab Muslims who truly deserve 
representation in Israel's parliament by Israeli Arab and Israeli Arab Muslims who are proud Israeli citizens standing up for their sector. And they're the ones who don't have this with the, ex with the existing uh, Arab parties. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to see that happen. Uh, I'm looking forward, by the way, to next week. Uh, I'm one of the 30 members of the Central Elections Committee, so I look forward to sitting and putting my judicial cap on for a minute and uh, taking a look at all the petitions and, and deciding uh, who I feel um, does not live up to, as you said, uh, basic law Knesset um, section 7a, that um, you know anyone who decides that they do not accept Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, I think it's very clear. <laughs> it's very clear based on that, um, who can run and who can't run in the election. I'm very happy afterwards to come and explain my, my votes. <laughs> Although I'm sure that you can guess what uh, they might be. We'll wait, uh, of course, today's the last day to file uh, in the Central Elections Committee, those who want to petition against uh, a specific member running on a list or the entire list itself. But like you said, in the end, uh, it's going to go over to the Supreme Court to make a decision. I can tell you, though, you know, it's, uh, I'm really enjoying my, my position within that committee. Uh, Justice uh, Amit, who's also my neighbor here in uh, Mifasirtzion, we do not agree politically but he shuts up anyone that tries to uh, go into my words and not allow me to uh, get my op opinion across. And uh, I also sit in the subcommittee that deals with the double envelopes, which I'm sure will also be very interesting when we get into the fights over the search for 61 on both sides uh, in, in the post-election. But um, I, I think that it's very important for uh, the Supreme Court to understand based on what the decisions that we do make within the Central Elections Committee, that they listen specifically to not just the votes, but the legal um, opinion of each voting member of why it is that they chose to vote what it is that they chose based on, again, the hard law of what's written. Because we can talk about the intent and this and that and whatever. In the end, we have to deal with uh, the actual written law and uh, that's also been my argument in previous uh, situations, such as, uh, you know, the, the decision making in terms of when we should do the uh, propaganda ads on TV. You know, uh, there, there were people that wanted to do it at two in the morning. To me, I said, you know, I guess, you know, um, that doesn't change the law. The law says to do it. But I think um, we, we need to understand that it's better to do it at two in the morning than to not do it at all, because at least we're able to do the law. But yeah, let, let's understand that maybe in that particular you know, case, we're not doing the accessibility that is necessary uh, to be able to um, illustrate this law. So again, if we're gonna say in the case that we have a situation where uh, we're uh, saying that those who are Jewish and democratic cannot run in this election, if we're gonna say that they can, then we have to ask then what is left from that law? Right. What is the letter of the law sure. that we're allowing? And if we're only going to decide to discriminate people based on the Jewish aspect, but not on the democratic aspect, or vice versa, we have to then say that it's the job of the lawmaker to make the laws, and it's the job of the judiciary to then interpret the laws based on what was actually written. Jeremy Sultan, Knesset Insider, number 10 on the Amina list, and my go-to guy for the inside 
Politics of Israel's Parliament, the Knesset. Thank you so much. Always enjoy talking to you and having these in-depth conversations, explanations, even disagreements, but it is always a pleasure and I really appreciate your time. So thank you very much, Jeremy. Avi, it's, it's always a pleasure for me to be able to come on and be with you on your show and give an opportunity for your listeners to you know broaden their horizons a little bit and hear some perspectives in depth on a lot of the issues that unfortunately based on our system, they're only to get a uh, superficial um, answer to based on what's out there right now. So again, uh, thank you to your listeners and, and uh, viewers, but also thank you to you for asking those questions and for really trying to go in, in depth and have a deep dive into the important situations that are really the big questions that we're dealing with today, both within this election, but also within Israeli society. So thank you. No, I appreciate that. And definitely to end off on a note that I know we, we both agree upon is the need to really focus on a deeper level on so many issues that whether it's people's attention spans or, or the media or social media just gets everyone's fuse jumping to conclusions and jumping to accusations where there is so much uh, gray and complexity to issues that you could still come to the same conclusions, but at least have more of an understanding and uh, and decency and respect for uh, for one another, even when there are differences. But uh, that I know. 100%. We, we... Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's very easy for me to go ahead and argue with someone who actually knows what they stand for, as opposed to a bunch of populists that are just reading off their, you know, messages from their spin doctors and have absolutely no idea of what the ramifications are of the dangerous things they're proposing. You know, again, I recognize the things that you're saying. I come with my counterpoints and we can agree or disagree right. based on what to do. What, what's dangerous are the people who are proposing things without understanding the consequences and the various scenarios, if they're wrong. <laughs> and if, uh, if you don't have those uh, situations and those um, uh, positions where you understand the ramifications of your actions, then I would recommend that you uh, find yourself a different uh, job. I'll put it that way. Got it. All right, Jeremy, once again, wonderful ending on an agreement. But uh, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next update. How many days to elections? 41? 40? How many days? Um, I'm trying to think. Around I think 40. That's what I get there. I think it's or, 41. 40, right. 40, yeah. 41 days. So looking forward to the next update to see where this roller coaster ride of Israeli politics will take us at that point. So looking forward, Jeremy. Thank you, Avi. And thank you all. And thank you to all of uh, my Pulse of Israel listeners for tuning in for another episode of Pulse of Israel here in our eternal and ancestral homeland, the land of Israel, in our eternal, ancestral, biblical, and beautiful Judean hills right outside my windows. Um, and I hope you enjoyed this deep dive with Jeremy Sultan. I always enjoy the talks with them, really getting into the nitty gritty of the issues. And again, you could see like there are things I disagree with, but it's very important for me personally to, to hear what he has to say that I don't even know the rationales behind certain decisions or, or, or issues. And obviously to allow every, all my listeners also to hear all of that information and to further the understanding that we should be having respect for one another uh, and a respect to understand things without jumping to 
conclusions based on the little knowledge we have before jumping to accusations and personal accusations. It's important. It's the most important thing is we have decency and respect. And then we can discuss the, the, the issues, whether we agree or disagree. But uh, you really got a lot here. Hope you enjoyed. And uh, looking forward to giving you more on all the issues of Israel, politics, upcoming Israeli elections, Jewish issues, freedom-loving world, it's all there. So if you are not yet a subscriber to the Pulse of Israel, just go visit pulseofisrael.com and subscribe. Shalom, everyone. Thanks for watching. Pulse of Israel, frontline videos from the Holy Land. Support our work by donating today.